Because many of you don't know who I am. I'm an elder in the church, been an elder here at Bridgewave, uh, I don't know, four or five years or so. I came here about the same time John Lee did. Um, do a lot of things in the church. Actually, my wife, Crystal, right here, and I came and we helped to start this church. Let's see, Larry, and I see uh, Sherry Panasuk is here, and uh, Brett in the back. A few of us were some of the old guard that came out originally from Arcade Baptist and helped start this church back in the mid-90s. So I'm an elder there. Um, I'm in charge of the drama ministry. You may have seen some of the Christmas plays that we put on. Well, I write and direct. They're all original. We don't do anything that's copied from anywhere. It's all original. Uh, you may have seen some of the summer plays. Unfortunately, you probably didn't see a summer play this, this year. We're going to do the story of Samson, which is great, because it's during the time of Judges that we're studying right now. Two weeks before the play, Samson broke his leg. So we couldn't go on with the play because he was on crutches and had a big cast on, and it just, just didn't look right for the, for the play. So we're going to do that next spring. Uh, let's see what else. We have the C3 the singles over 30s Bible study that uh, my wife and I lead. That meets uh, Wednesday nights in my house. I'm preaching here so I can put a shameless plug in there myself if I feel like it. Uh, the first weekend in August, by the way, Paula, here's, here's our announcement. We're going to have a pizza and game party for all of those of you who are not involved in the C3 Bible study. Uh, Saturday night after church, on, uh, it's like August 4th or, or 5th there at 8 o'clock. You'll see it in the bulletin next week. Um, my wife is on the worship team. You may have seen her uh, a few times uh, up here on stage. And Sunday mornings, sometimes maybe you've brought your third or fourth grader in to the 11 o'clock service or to the, the Sunday school. I teach the third and fourth graders. And that's certainly the most interesting ministry I'm in because I do ask the children about their parents <laughs> and get all kinds of good information to hold at some later point against the, those parents there. Um, start off tonight. I know that you guys have been missing Lance. He hasn't been here in a couple weeks, and by next week it'll have been three weeks. And you're going into Lance withdrawals. So, I have a way to eliminate this. I have the top nine Lanceisms that I'm going to read to you and try to sprinkle throughout the sermon tonight. The top nine things heard by Lance most commonly in one of his sermons. And I'll count down nine to one. And you let me know if this is something that you recognize from any one of Lance's many sermons. Number nine thing heard in one of Lance's sermons is, here we go. All right, number, oh, we got to skip over number eight. We're going to straight to number seven. I guess I crossed out eight. Number seven. Okay, here's the deal. All right, okay. Number six. Okay, let me make it real simple for you. All right, he's always making it simple for us. Number five. Okay, stop right there as you're reading through the scripture. And we move on. And we move on. You've heard that a lot. Number four. Amen? Amen. Number three. Absolutely. Now, not just sermon. You'll hear them say that in everyday life. Absolutely. Number two thing heard in a, Lance, in a sermon by Lance. Let me tell you a story about my daughter on date night. All right. Now, I don't have date nights with my daughter. I have a son. I'll see what I can work in there. And the number one thing heard... Every sermon that Lance has ever preached here is, you're going to need a Bible if you're going to hang with us tonight. That's right. So raise your hand right now if you don't have a Bible with you tonight. You're going to need one. We've got people in the back here with Bibles. Keep your hands raised there, and they'll bring a Bible up to you. I apologize again for the lights. The lights are a little bit dim tonight in the, in the center section here in the front. 
I know with the heat that's today, you might feel like sleeping. That's okay. I understand. I might be sleeping myself. Okay, let's go on here. That is, we're going to go to Judges chapter 4, which is page 172. Page 172 in the NIV, which is what you're getting there if you're raising your hand. Now, I will be reading out of the NAS, which is my personal Bible, and I know I really should be reading from the NIV to be following along with you or have you follow along with me, but it's like a security blanket, and I really need a security blanket right now. So I'm sticking with my NAS. It's got all my notes in it and everything. All right. Brett, let's go ahead and have the first slide, please. Provided here by Rachel of Israel. Okay, that's a little bit small. You might not be able to see everything on there. Uh, but this week we're talking about Deborah and Jael. If you know the story of Deborah from the book of Judges, chapter 4 and 5. And right up here is the city of Hazor. So it's not just Lance, it's me too with the shaky hands. All right, so right there. Actually, let me look up closer. Is that really Hazor? Yeah, that's Hazor. Okay, there's the Sea of Galilee right there. And Hazor is right up here. This is the city that we're going to talk about. And... Uh, do they have Mount Tabor up there? I'm not seeing Mount Tabor. But that's the area we're going to talk about in the fighting that happened. you got Naphtali and Zebulun right here. Some of the two main tribes we're going to talk about tonight in their, their fight against the Canaanite oppression. Chapter 4 and 5 are two different styles. And it's the, the second time you find this in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. One is more of a historical narrative. One is more of poetry talking about it in a, a more poetic narrative about the, the creation of the earth. Same kind of thing here. Chapter 4 is the historical outline of what happened in Israel at the time of Deborah, who was a judge at that time. Chapter 5 is the psalm that went platinum after this chapter happened. And it kind of recaps everything that went on. Deborah wrote the song. You may not have heard it. It's probably not being played right now. But it, as far as I know, it's the first song that we have recorded in the Bible in its entirety. Uh, that everybody, and the whole purpose was that everybody was to sing it. This song was to memorialize what happened in Israel during this chapter here. All right, let's start reading here. Page 172 in your blue Bibles, or follow along in your Bibles, chapter 4 of Judges. And in the style of Lance, I'll be stopping frequently and starting frequently. So hang in there with me. All right. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Stop right there. Right. And what number was that? I forget what number that was. Stop right there. So Ehud, now it's been a couple of weeks. Ehud was the guy who was left handed, snuck past the, well, he didn't sneak past the guards. He went past the guards. They didn't think to check him on the right side to, to see if he had a dagger in that foot and a half long sword. And he went in and talked to the king and the king dismissed all the attendants. And Ehud just put his arm right through the guy, right up to the hilt, stuck out the backside. And then he ran. So that was Ehud. Ehud ran, and there was a great battle, and there was victory, and everything was great. But the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hethor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagaim. I have no idea if I said that right. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Some of you may have been here before when Lance talked about Hazor and King Jabin and the Jer Joshua going in and uh, taking over the land of Canaan. And you may say to yourselves, now wait a minute. They're fighting Jabin, the son, uh, the king of Hazor. I thought Hazor was destroyed. In fact, let me read to you from Joshua 11, 1 and 2. It says, And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote its king with the sword, whose name also by coincidence was Jabin, the same name. 
For Hazor previously was the head of all those kingdoms, and they smote all the souls who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua went in there with his army. They not only defeated the army, they killed every single man, woman, and child in the city, and then they burned it down just for good measure, which also meant that they burned all the, the, the cattle, the sheep, anything that was of any kind of worth to them. And that was total destruction. And that has been confirmed through archaeology of this great layer of soot and ash in Hazor, where dating to the exact time of when uh, Joshua went in there. So you're saying, well, how is another Jabin coming? And now he's this bad guy and he's oppressing the Israelites, so he's got to have some kind of a pretty good-sized city. In fact, uh, commentaries say there's probably about 40,000 people living in Hazor at the time of Deborah. Um, it was probably the main city in all of northern Israel for the Canaanites, for the pagans that lived there at the same time. So it was the rallying point. It was where the palace was, where the king was, who ruled over the other smaller kings of the different uh, areas around there. Obviously, they went in. There was such a population of Canaanites that they repossessed Hazor after Joshua was through with it. Uh, there was nothing left for Joshua and the Israelites to use there, so they moved on, but the Canaanites went back and settled on it. And let's go to this second slide here, Brett. Let's look at the city of Hazor today. This is Hitzor right here. And right up here, well, you see, it looks like a little hill there. They call these tells in Israel. A tell is a little hill that is where an ancient city used to be. And they're always excavating these tells to see what they can find there. They found uh, right down here, they found the city gates to the original city of Hazor. And it was uh, had these huge, huge gates that would be like 20 feet high. There were six chambers in there where the judges and the people would hang out and, and trade and have all kinds of uh, merchandise going back and forth. Uh, up here, there was a Canaanite city part of it, and there was a huge temple to Baal. Do you remember Baal from Lance talking a couple weeks ago? He was the main uh, god of the Canaanites at that time. He was the god of the under the water, like Lance said, and he's the god of storms, the god of lightning. And then up here is the main palace. Just as a side note, they build. Why are they going to build on a hill? Well, what's interesting is that hill used to not be there. That hill is a series of cities that have been built on top of each other over the years. It gets destroyed, they build on top of it. It gets destroyed by an invading army, they build on top of it. After a while, you've got this huge hill, and they just keep building on that same area. And these, some of these tells have strategic importance, and that's why they keep, people keep coming back to that same area. Hesor uh, was formed, uh, founded about 3000 B.C., and it was the center of the Baal worship. I don't know if you remember Jezebel and Ahab. They're from this area as well, two really uh, nasty types that we learn about in Kings. Um, what is Israel's attitude during this time? If you recall from Lance's sermon a couple of weeks ago, he talked about how God had intended with Joshua going in there and dividing up the land to all the different tribes. He had intended for them to possess the land, but the people did not possess it fully. They took out what was easy and that which was hard. They just kind of said, that's okay. We'd rather just kick back on our couches, watch TV, and let you go ahead and just live there. That's, that's fine. You can be there. We're not going to worry about it. Uh, the problem is that kept becoming a problem, a thorn in their flesh over the years. Um, we read in uh, chapter 5, later on in the song, it talks about how the highways were unoccupied. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, says, the highways were unoccupied and travelers walked through byways. Those in open country ceased in Israel. So those people 
of the Israelites didn't even walk on the main highways at the time of Deborah here. They were oppressed so severely to the point where they didn't even want to be seen on a road. If they had to go anywhere, they took little trails, little cow trails that, that we would see in our hills here. That's barely a trail at all to get from one village to another village. Uh, everybody who lived in the open plains up and moved. They, they got out of there as fast as they could. There was constant raids and oppression from uh, all of the Canaanites centralized out of Hitzor here. Chapter 4 is a historical narrative, and Lance has warned us, you know, you don't want to go too crazy and do too much application. It isn't necessarily a story to teach us anything today in and of itself. However, there are many, many things that happen throughout the story that we can learn from and apply. The one being the heart of the Israelites at the time. They're not willing to possess the land. What, you know, think to yourselves, what are some of the things that God has put on your heart to do that you haven't fully possessed. You've only partially possessed them. Um, it could be as simple as how often you're reading your Bible. You know, perhaps God is telling you, no, five minutes of the day isn't cutting it or an hour a day isn't cutting it. I need you to up that amount and you're just not willing to put the time into it. Um, it could be a trip to Indonesia. We had the missionaries here last week and a couple of people from our, our own. Uh, Nancy was here talking about her experiences over there. And it was really exciting to hear about that. And, you know, she was even saying how she did not want to go to Africa. You know, the common cliche is, please don't send me to Africa, God, whatever you do. You know, there's some things that God may call you to do that you don't want to do. Uh, is it perhaps the children's ministry? Let me just pause there for a minute and look at all of you, whoever you think it applies to. Children's ministry really needs a lot of people and a lot of help. Um, and what, what is the reason that we fail to possess what God wants us to have? Is it... Resistance, like in the Israelites' case, or persecution, perhaps it's just the amount of effort that we're not willing to put into it, or perhaps we feel inadequate to do the job. Well, we're going to learn a lot of things here through Deborah and Barak that will hopefully inspire us to, to move forward in those areas. Let's read on here, beginning in the verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, I don't know what you guys think of when you think of Deborah. Let me actually get a raise of hands here. Raise your hand if you've heard of Deborah, the story of Deborah in the Old Testament before. Okay, so most of you, I won't ask you to actually give me feedback right now, but just picture in your mind who you think when you think of Deborah. Brett, if you could put up what I think of that's who I think of when I think of Deborah. Now, and what's really funny is, actually, when we were in the very first church that we moved into, uh, Deborah, who's teaching the kids right now, she actually dressed up as Deborah, as Zena, and came out and did a little drama skit for us. I was a Jay Leno guy, and we were interviewing Deborah from the Old Testament. So that was funny. So I've always thought of Deborah as looking like Zena. So let's uh, just take that off now. I don't want people to get distracted by that. All right. Um, who was Deborah? She was not only a, a prophet... Not only a judge, she was a songwriter, too, and a real good songwriter as well. Um, this is here, uh, God called Deborah a prophetess and a judge. She saw herself as a mother. You wonder, what did she see herself as? In chapter 5, uh, verse 7, it says, I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. So she saw herself as a mother. That was just kind of secondary, the, the judging and the 
the prophetizing and the songwriting and all that, she saw herself as protecting all the children, all the, the, the Jewish people, especially during this time of oppression. I mean, how, as a mother, if you know your children are being hurt, oppressed, uh, chased after, picked on by a bully, I mean, you know you just want to protect those kids and do everything you can. So Deborah was there to protect the Israelites during this, this whole time. How were the prophets and judges appointed? We don't know. I, I talked to Lance, and even Lance did not know. Uh, commentaries don't have really good answers, other than we know that God's Spirit came upon them and God had chosen them Himself, and the people just naturally, I guess, recognized that they were from God. If they hadn't, they probably would have stoned them, as per the Pentateuch. Uh, there were two other examples of prophetesses in the Old Testament, interestingly enough, that I didn't even think about or had forgotten about. Miriam, who some of you may have know the name of, and Huldah. I don't know if you, I have forgotten completely about Huldah. But Miriam from Exodus 15:20 says, The Lord covered the royal Egyptian cavalry with chariots with the sea, and the Israelites had walked safely through on the dry ground. Miriam, the sister of Aaron. Now, why it doesn't say sister of Moses, I don't know. I was asking Crystal that earlier. I was like, why does it say sister of Aaron and not sister of Moses? Because they were all sisters and brothers. Anyway, it says the sister of Aaron was a prophet, and she took her tambourine and led the other woman out to play their tambourines and to dance. And then she sang to them, sing praises to the Lord for his great victory. He has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. And there have been modern day songs written about that as well. Well, that's Miriam. She wrote and sang songs and Deborah wrote and sang songs. Isn't it interesting that God had raised up some leadership, raised up some women, and they were the, the worship leaders uh, back in the Old Testament. I think that was interesting. The other one is Huldah from 2 Kings 22:14, probably a verse that you might not have read recently. It says here, the five men left right away and went to talk with Huldah the prophet. Her husband was Shalom, who was in charge of the king's clothes. Huldah lived in the northern part of Jerusalem. That's all it says about Huldah. But we know that she was a prophetess. So, Deborah, it isn't a unique situation. There were other situations that were at least mentioned, perhaps more that weren't mentioned, of God putting a woman in charge uh, to one degree or another. Um, two main big points that come through here for this. God's Spirit came on women just as easily as men. It wasn't a big deal that Deborah had been chosen to be the leader of Israel at that time. In the churches today... It's a big sticking point and a lot of, raises a lot of controversy to what level women have authority in, in the church at what levels. Um, but we know that from God's heart, which was displayed here in the Old Testament, he had no problem putting women there himself. He was pro-woman. That's good. God's pro-woman. Number two, don't assume that it's a man's name being called when there's a ministry position coming open. There's a lot of times when we get our stereotypes in our mind of, well, okay, yeah, we need... Uh, some position filled. I don't know what that might be, but you know what? Uh, obviously, that's not me. I'm a woman. I, I can't fill that. You know, don't think that. Investigate it. Talk, talk to people. Pray to God. Read your Bible. See, perhaps there's a position here that you're not thinking of that could easily be filled by you. No problem whatsoever. So, two things. God has no problem putting a woman in position here, and don't assume it's a man name that's being called. All right. Let's move, and we move on. Right? Okay. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord and God of Israel has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and as many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. 
then Barack said to her, well, you'll go with me, I'll go, all right? But if you're not going to go with me, I'm not going to go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with them. And Deborah also went up with them. Barak is introduced at this point. We don't know if he was a, a leader to any degree. We don't know if he had any military experience. It just says the Lord has spoken to Deborah and said, grab Barak and tell him he needs to pull together an army. Now, Israel at this time is dealing with just volunteers as far as joining the army. Um, in chapter 5, it says that not a sword was found among 40,000 in Israel. There wasn't a lot of weapons at the time. Uh, you're dealing here with Sisera, who said he had 900 iron chariots. Israelites didn't have a lot of iron. They didn't have chariots at all. They're being outclassed uh, militarily. They're being outclassed as far as a standing army, where Hazor has a great standing army, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but she brings him in. And by the way, Barak's name means lightning. Brett, if you go ahead and show us Baal again. Baal is the god of lightning. According to the, the Canaanites, they'll almost refer to him as the storm god or the god of lightning. It's interesting that God would tell Deborah, okay, I want you to bring up a military commander. In fact, I'm going to have you bring lightning to go fight their lightning. It's lightning versus lightning. Our God versus their God. Very similar to Elijah going up and fighting the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Same kind of thing. God's going to fight lightning with lightning. Um, the big question here and the big debate is, what, what is Barak's deal? He says, uh, yeah, I'll go fight all these people of superior numbers and superior weaponry if you'll go with me. But I'm not going if you're not going to go with me. We have two different options. We're not sure exactly which one is correct or maybe there's perhaps a mix of both. Was he just chicken? And he said, you know what? I need you to come with me because if you're really telling the truth, then you'll have no problem coming with me, right? If you're not sure you're right, then you're not going to want to come with me. And then I'll know I'm not going to go either. So maybe he was perhaps chickening out or he was just afraid. Or perhaps on a positive side for Brock, perhaps he was saying, you know what? I'll absolutely do that. But I know that you represent God to our people. And I'm not going to move unless you move with me because I know God moves with you. And I'm not going to go into this battle without God with me. Back in, or actually I said not back, this is forward. When they get the, the Ark of the Covenant uh, later on with King David and there's uh, Saul, King Saul. And they would always take out the Ark with them where God's presence was. They would take that out to the battle with them because they knew that God's spirit was there and his essence was there, his glory was there and would fight the battles for them. So it could be that Barak was just saying, you know what, I really want God to come with me, I'm, and I know he's with you, and so if you're with me, I know for sure he's there. And the guys would feel a lot better if you were there, too. We need our mother to come along with us and hold her hand. You have all the band-aids, and we are going to need those against these odds. Uh, just a, a little quote from Exodus 33. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So we do have an example of Moses actually demonstrating this, that Moses was not going to move without God moving with him. All right, we'll, and we move on. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites from the sons of Hobab, 
father-in-law Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananinim. Yeah, I know you probably can say that better than I can. Which is near Kadesh. And oddly enough, this verse is just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Yes, just you're not going crazy. That verse doesn't really seem to fit in there. Just forget that verse for right now. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Haroshath Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Let's throw up here, Brett, the uh, Mount Tabor. Here we go. This is Mount Tabor right out here. And you're standing, I believe this is uh, Mount Carmel that we're looking out on the Tabor from. Uh, you can see it's about 2,000 feet above the, the floor of the valley there. And it's very flat. That is, also Megiddo is around here somewhere as well. This is the plain where the, the final battle is going to happen in Revelation. This is the plains of Megiddo. Huge, flat, open valley. Great place for a battle. Great place for chariots. Oh boy. So the Israelites know they're in trouble because now... Uh, Sisera has brought up all those chariots and his army into this plain, and they're going to be in trouble here. Um, so if you're an Israelite and you want to go to be safe from this army and perhaps neutralize the advantage of the enemy, what better place to go to than a real steep mountain here, Mount Tabor? What you can't see very well from this picture is those hillsides are very steep and there's no way a chariot can go up the, the side of that hill. Uh, there's a couple accounts I'm going to read to you here regarding that. Uh, the first one I'm actually going to paraphrase because it's by the historian Josephus. Raise your hand if you've heard Josephus or heard uh, Lance talk about Josephus. Yeah, yeah, some of you have. He was the guy that the, that the Romans took about the time of Christ and said, hey, you know what? We're conquering all these different lands. We'd like you to be the historian and document every single thing that has happened to all these people that we're conquering and killing. And could you go ahead and start with the Israelites and just detail everything from the creation of mankind all the way to us destroying them. And Josephus said, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. Of course, the Jewish people hated him for that, um, but he was kind of a private, he was a Jew himself uh, in the employee of the Romans at the time. And he wrote about, a, at the time that Rome took over, a lot of the people were fleeing. Uh, some of them flew to Mount Tabor, hoping to get the same, uh, that the odds neutralized, to where they could be safe. They built a 40-foot high wall on the top of Mount Tabor and had rain uh, coming down so where they, they could have water. And they were out there for days and days. The Roman army had surrounded them. This is at the time of, uh, after the time of Christ. The Roman army had surrounded this entire hill here and had laid siege to it. Nobody could get off the mountain. The, Israel, the, the Jews at that time were just stuck up there. The Romans guys, Roman guy's name was Vespasian. And... He knew that he, I think it says here that uh, it was now as it was impossible for him to ascend the mountain. So with all his uh, weaponry that he had, it just wasn't practical to go up in the mountain. Said so he invited them by peace to come down to the valley. So he said, hey, come on down. And it said he spoke mildly to them and gave them great platitudes saying, come on down. Let's just resolve this peacefully. But can't we all just be friends? Secretly, he was going to lure them out there and then just betray them and slaughter them once they got on the valley. The remnant of Jewish people said, okay, we're going to starve to death up here if we stay up here much longer. Let's go down and pretend to go along with this peace treaty. And when he's not looking, we'll just stab them and we'll, we'll, we'll get them. So both sides were planning to trick each other. So the, the Jewish people came down and 
They came down the plane, came into Vespasian, and the minute they got into Vespasian, they gave the war cry, and boom, the Jewish people went out and started to attack them, and the Romans started fleeing. They didn't realize, however, that Vespasian gave the orders to flee as a feint. Vespasian went down the valley of Megiddo. He went down, 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 drew them way far away from there, had his horsemen go around behind them, and they surrounded them and completely wiped them off the face of the earth. Um, so that was the only way that the Romans were able to beat them, was to get them off of Mount Tabor. So now Deborah is saying, Barak, I want you to get the, the guys together, and we're going to get 10,000 of them. We're going to go up to that mountain. So Barak's probably thinking, hey, you got a pretty good mind for strategy, because that, that's a great idea. Also here, it talks about the River Kishon that flows at the base of it. Right if we go to the River Kishon next, this is what the River Kishon looks like when it's got some water in it. At the time of the story, if you uh, read it in the Tanakh, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, it says it was the Wadi Kishon, meaning it was a dry riverbed at the time. So a lot of the times in the, the heat of the, the summer, there's no water here at all. Sometimes there's a little bit of water. And sometimes, Brett, let's go to the next slide. There is a lot of water. You can see all the trees are kind of flooded by the water here. And you can't get across it. It could be up to 65 feet wide in just 15 minutes. Um, it's one of those streams that ends up going up into Mount Carmel, up into one of these steep canyons. And when the rain comes, it all funnels down in this little canyon and just comes out as a flash flood. Um, this is the, the River Kishon right here. This is, by the way, where Elijah went down and destroyed all the prophets of Baal uh, or, uh, when they were up there and they had God strike the, uh, the offering and the altar with fire from heaven. Uh, so that's where Elijah took him. Also, and this is probably why Lance actually had me teaching this lesson, by the way, because he knows I love history and archaeology. So if some of you are going to be really excited tonight, Larry, I know you're right there with me. Some of you are going to be really bored. I'm only here tonight, one night only. And then Lance will be filling in for me the rest of the year. All right. Another interesting point. In 1800, just 200 years ago, Napoleon and his armies came. Oh, well, that's right. Tabor is not there. Napoleon came with his armies up to Tabor. Uh, to fight the Turkish armies. The Turkish army was eight times the size of Napoleon's army. Napoleon defeated the Turkish army because he fought from Mount Tabor. And at the same time that they fought, there was a flash flood and it wiped out the Turkish army. So we're going to find a lot of similarities here and some history repeating itself over and over and how uh, God uses nature and knowing uh, how nature works and how he's planned it to work to his advantage here and provide miracles. Um, oh, you know, also before we read on, I want to just talk about the two different armies here. Again, Israel had no standing army. They had many tribes that settled in. And whenever you needed to go possess more of the land that God gave for you, you your family's getting a little bit bigger. You're outgrowing your house. So you need to take a little bit more land You say to your friends, hey, come with me. Let's go and knock off this village here or take this city there. So. What had happened was about half of the, the tribes joined Barak. He went out and put out a, a flyer to all the, the tribes there and all of Israel. And in chapter 5, we learned that Zebulun, Naphtali, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Issachar joined Barak's army. Reuben, Dan, and Asher refused to join the fight, unfortunately. So they were divided. There was half of them. The main force was built up from Zebulun and Naphtali, the two closest tribes in the area where Hetzor, the city, was. They were the most oppressed, so they were willing to, to help fight. As I said before, so that they don't have an organized army that's always training every single day using uh, taxpayers' money to fly their F-15s and, and get fighter experience in there. Barak isn't necessarily a skilled military leader himself. 
They have few weapons. As I mentioned before, there was only one sword and 40,000 of the Israelites. They didn't have the great weapons. The Canaanites were the ones with the stealth weapons. They were the ones with the iron ch- chariots that they had there. The odds were, these are the odds if you're going to be the odds maker. There was 10,000 roughly men joining Barak. Josephus says, now, of course, it could be exaggerated. The numbers could be out of whack a little bit. But just to give you a sense of the size, he said that Jabin, the king of Hazor, had at his employee 300,000 footmen that he could call on to fight. He had 10,000 horsemen or cavalry and 3,000 chariots. Now, 900 of those, obviously, the Bible mentions were iron chariots. The rest were wood or whatever else they might have been made of. So there's 333,000 against 10,000. If, if all of them were there in the plane, there was definitely enough room for all of them to be there. As a frame of reference, Alexander, okay, and I promise this is the last time I'm going to go back in history, okay? Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world at the time, he conquered the world with 40,000 footmen, 6,000 horsemen, and zero chariots. So Alexander was able to conquer the world with far, far, far less than what supposedly King Jabin had here with Hazor, all against 10,000 untrained, unmanned, unarmed, unmanned, unarmed uh, civilians here. So one application we can take to ourselves here is the odds seem completely overwhelming to them, and yet the men were willing to go and fight for their mother, for their, for their God, for their country. Are there ministries which seem completely out of reach for you? Uh, as this church grows and continues to get bigger and bigger, we as an elder board already talking about, well, what's the next step? Are we going to lease a bigger building? Are we going to go to more services? And, you know, Russ is telling us really the next best step is we're going to probably end up having to uh, build our own building and buy a property. And we're like, well, how much is that going to cost? And he's giving us numbers that are staggering that we're like, there's no way in the world we're ever going to be able to get that much money to, to go there. And so the odds seem completely against us. And so there, there's a challenge for us in the elder board is to try to figure out where God's will is and uh, go against incredible odds. I don't know what the odds are in your life, the different ministries that you're afraid to fulfill, uh, what that might be. But just know that as long as God is there, he's going he's gonna to win it for you, just like he's going to win this battle here. So let's go on. Let's talk about the battle. Verse 14. And let me see here. I've got a, I, my cell phone. 721. Holy cow. All right. Time is flying. Nobody call me, by the way. That'll be embarrassing. All right. It's on vibrate anyways. And Deborah said to Barak, arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down the Mount Tabor, down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not one was left. So that is the historical documentation of this battle. The guys went down, they killed them all, chased them, and that's it. And now Paul Harvey would say, and now for the rest of the story. There's a lot more to it in chapter 5. That's amazing that you don't even get. And it's, I don't know why he doesn't put it in the, in the narrative here. Um, Judges chapter 5, 20 and 21 says, They fought from heaven. The stars in their course fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. Let me read to you Josephus' description of the battle that happened. Now again, remember in chapter 4, it just says they went down and killed them all. Josephus says, so the battle began, and when they were come to a close fight, that means when both armies were head-on, man-to-man, 
fighting along a long battlefront. With a vast quantity of rain and hail, there was a, came down a, from heaven a great storm. And the wind blew, in the, blew the rain in the face of the Canaanites and so darkened their eyes that their arrows and slings were of no advantage to them, nor would the coldness of the air permit the soldiers to use their swords. I have no idea what that means, why being cold would keep them from using their swords. Maybe there's a better historian than me that could uh, let us know about that. While the storm did not so as much as inaccommodate the Israelites because it came at their backs. So you hear from Josephus and you hear from the song that Deborah wrote that it was not just them going down and fighting and taking the glory. It was completely a God thing. This is an army that didn't have a lot of technology. Deborah told them, go. And they just went. And at the time they went, boom, storm came up. The Wadi Kishon turned into the floodplain Kishon, as you see right here behind me, completely neutralized all the advantage that, that Sisera had in that battle. And it says that Sisera alighted off his chariot. You may say, why in the world would he get off his chariot? Isn't that a faster way to get out of there? Chariots, just like back when the, uh, Moses crossed the Red Sea, when they, the chariots were wiped out by the waters coming back on top of them, chariots completely immobilized in the mud and the muck that would have come here. So Sisera is fleeing on foot at this point, trying to get away from there. And we read on. Now Sisera fled away on foot, verse 17, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water for a drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes to inquire of you and says, Is there anyone here? You'll say, No. That's all. Just no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground beneath his head, for he was sound asleep. That is quite a sleep. Exhausted, and so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I'll show you the man for whom you're seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was there lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. You may say to yourself, Wow, this is just bizarre that this woman would take matters into her own hands like that with the, the king of, he's the, I would say, the commander of the largest army in, in the, potentially the world at that time. Notice one that she went out of her tent to meet him. She went out to meet him and pulled him into his tent. That is a woman taking it. That is not just a woman, a person taking initiative to fulfill God's will and to save the day. How many of us wait for God's will to happen, wait for opportunities to come to us? How cool and great would it be for us to initiate points of contact, initiate uh, conversations with people on your own. Go out of your way to meet someone if you're at school or work or wherever you might be and start up a casual conversation. Get to know a person and over time bring up the Word of God and what He's done for you in your life and begin to evangelize to the different people that are in your life that aren't necessarily uh, coming to church or even saved or what have you. So that would be my main encouragement from there, from jail, is take matters in your own hands and create some points of contact. Create, create some opportunities that God will get the glory in. Um, oh, one interesting note here the reason that he probably fled into that tent was because at the time in the, the Middle East it was taboo for a man to go into a woman's tent and typically now here especially she being of a, um, with Heber here kind of a guest in the land a friend of King Jabin of Hazor 
you would never go into there and she would be considered property. I hate to say it, but the women that back then were considered property. She would be by herself in her own separate tent, her own separate house, uh, most likely. So Sister is probably thinking, hey, great, this is a fantastic opportunity. No one who's chasing me, uh, Barak, is not going to come into this tent. All she has to do is say no, and it's taboo for him to come in here and look for me. And besides, it's just her anyways. I know there's nobody else lurking in this tent. It's just going to be her anyways. So he went in there and... She seized the moment again and took the tent pegs. The women were the ones that, that pitched the tents uh, in this society and took the big mallet and just wham, let them have it there. So it says, so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier on Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. The main point of this story the reason why it's even written in here was not just that there was deliverance that God had provided, but the way the deliverance came. And it is about women. Some of you guys, I know it's going to be hard to take. Believe me, I know. I've been there myself many times. God was saying to the Canaanites, you know what? You think you're all good with your army and you're possessing the whole land and we can't get rid of you. Well, guess what? Your army is going to be destroyed by a woman and your commander is going to be killed by another woman, some lady in a tent, she's going to just nail you to the ground. That was horribly, horribly humiliating. And, of course, no one in Canaan is ever going to want to spread that story or let that get out at all. You're not going to hear that version from the Canaanites. Now, to the Israelites, that's amazing to them. This is God saying, hey, it doesn't matter what your army, what disarray you're in, what little experience you have, I can choose anyone. I'm going to take this woman right here and we're going to go kick their butts and we're going to go take over the city and and release your captivity here. So, I know I said but. I'm sorry. (laughs) Rest is done worse. Okay, I feel better. All right. So, it is a point of humiliation. Now, chapter 5, which we are probably not going to... Yes, we're not going to go into chapter 5. You can be thankful for that. I'm not going to go too long. Chapter 5 is the song about this whole thing. And uh, in there, it talks about this song is to be sung at the waterways where people are gathering to get, get water for their flocks. Uh, it's to be told on the highways. It's to be spread by people on their donkeys, on their camels, on their horses. It's to be spread by the rich, spread by the poor. The whole song itself talks about how you need to spread this story everywhere on all the highways, all levels of society, from the Canaanites to the Israelites. Everyone is to spread this song. So it was a command from Deborah, from God, for this to be kind of like the national anthem. So this song was sung to humiliate the Canaanites, because you know they didn't like hearing that song, and to constantly be an easy way for the Israelites to remember the deliverance that God had brought for them. Last point. You're going to ask yourselves, why, why, why? If you'd like, you could turn to Hebrews with me. Let's talk about credit. Let's talk about what happens here. You want to turn to Hebrews 11:30. I'll show you something that's messed up. Kind of a humorous side point here to end on. Hebrews 11:30. I don't know why this is, but this is the way it is, and you can fight with Lance over it later. Hebrews 11:30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab, mentioning a woman right there, by faith Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who by faith... Wait a minute. What happened? Where's Deborah? Where's Jael? 
completely disses her in the New Testament. How rude is that? I have no idea why, but Deborah's not mentioned. Barak gets all the credit in the New Testament, which I guess just goes to show that we should have men in leadership. In the ch- no, just kidding. Just kidding. Lance is probably going to kill me for that one. Uh, just in conclusion, a few points. And uh, if you want, Mark, you can go ahead and bring up the band at this point. Recapsulating uh, four points earlier made. Are you acting on what God is asking you to do? Are you possessing the land that God has put in your life to possess? Two, do you think, or don't think that a ministry position is for someone else. God uses anyone for any position. Three, are you moving without God? Or are you going to be like Barak and say, you know what, I'm not going anywhere unless I know God is with me. How often do we, even in the name of, of helping out ministries at church, do we move and do things without even praying about it first or meditating on it or reflecting on what it is we're doing? Are we moving in ministries here at church even without God with us? And create opportunities to serve God. And one last thing that I do want to point out, uh, Mark had mentioned to you about Matt, and I know many of you probably got a letter this week um, announcing that Matt had resigned. Lance and Russ are going to talk uh, in more detail about that next week and give you a little bit more details on exactly what's going on. But one thing I, wanted, I do want to say, and it kind of hit me last night as I'm going through reviewing all this and trying to think of a really good application to our church. You know, it just jumped out at me. The whole point of the whole book of Judges is about the leaders that God provided, the leaders leaving and what happened to how the Israelites act in the meantime, and then God bringing another leader, and then bringing another leader, and then bringing another leader. Matt has been fantastic and great. We've thoroughly enjoyed and had many great experiences with him. And uh, I just want you to know that the elder board of the church we are supporting him and loving all over him, and we just have the most respect for the ministry that he's established here at the church. We want you to know, I wanted to let you guys know that just from studying the book of Judges alone, you know that God's going to still bring incredible leaders to come here for worship. Perhaps Lance leaves someday, you never know. There's going to be great leaders that are always going to be coming to the church. If you only were left with Moses, you never would have had Joshua. Just think if they had had Ehud and wanted God to keep Ehud alive as an immortal and never pass on, they would have never experienced the mothering of Deborah. If they would have been stuck on Deborah, they never would have known that the great conquering uh, attitude of Gideon. They would have never been able to see uh, um, David without Saul coming first or Solomon without David coming first. There's going to be a great line of great people that God is going to bring to us here at this church. And I would just encourage you uh, to be praying for the church, praying for the ministry and, and praying for God to be leading, bringing us our next leader, uh, giving all kinds of encouragement to Mark and the different teams that are going to be up here, uh, leading us in worship, and uh, just any support that if you do see uh, Matt and Lexi's support, you can give them, just you know, give them a big hug and tell them you love them, and uh, that's uh, all I can ask you. Thank you very much. Sorry I went a few minutes overtime there, though.